Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic. And I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a refrigerated rail car full of lettuce. <laughs> it's exactly how I've always thought to describe you. Yeah, it's my essence. The way this podcast normally works is that Ned is a big train of lettuce, and he and I <laughs> take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love, but we are switching things up a bit with our latest series because we're covering an actor who only ever made three films, James Dean. And last week, we kicked things off with his most iconic role as Jim Stark in Rebel Without a Cause. So this week, we are going back a couple months in time to look at his debut, uh, leading man debut in Ilya Kazan's East of Eden, which is the sadly the only film that Dean uh, saw in his lifetime before his untimely death at the age of 24. So Ned, I am actually very, very excited to jump into this movie with you. But um, first of all, I haven't talked in a little bit, so how's your week going? <laughs> oh, it's been it's been really good. You did some Yeah, traveling. it's been really good. I did. I went to Austin, Texas uh, to watch two of my very good friends get married. It was very emotional. Everyone was extremely forthcoming with their emotions mm. the whole week. Bride and groom, friends, you know, just people in Austin. It was awesome. We played mini golf at two different places. I ate loads of amazing food. I schwitzed my took us off. Yeah. <laughs> It was great. Yeah, how was your week, Caroline? You know, my week was good. One of the things I did this week actually was to catch up on some of those TV episodes we talked about last week that James Dean oh, did. Oh, before. the Dean TV movies? Or yes. It, yeah, like yeah. little, little, some of them are only 30 minutes. They're between 30 minutes and an hour, and they're sort of little TV dramas huh. that he did. Like he did over 20 of them. So there's actually quite a lot of sort of Dean content out there beyond the three films he made. And I'd always kind of been curious about them. So I spent some time checking out those this week, and they like vary in quality for sure. I think sort of the most fun thing about them is that you just get to see him do so many different types of roles, which, mm -hmm. you know, in the in the three films, that's pretty limited. But, yeah. you know, you see him play like a biblical character and like a Southern gentleman, you know, in the Civil War era wow. South. And then, you know, like a, a good noble Korean war vet just like looking for a small town life with a nice girl by his side. But um, the one that I really wanted to recommend both to you and our audience is this one called The Dark, Dark Hours, which is from 1954. Um, this is the one that I mentioned last week that co-stars Ronald Reagan, ah, which Ronald I will Reagan, say- the actor. Yeah, famously. most Definitely most famous for being an actor, first and foremost. It was wild to just watch, you know, him be- <laughs> Who, Ronnie Reagan? Yeah. yeah. How is how is Ronnie Reagan? Yeah, he was good. So the setup is that James Dean is a criminal on the run with his friend who's been wounded, and we don't quite know what the crime is, but they're both, mm -hmm. they're like beat criminals. They're like in suits, and they're like, hey, daddy-o, we're cool cats. We, oh. You dig? Like, that's kind of how they talk. They're Hepcat criminals. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they show up at Ronald Reagan's house. He's a doctor. And because they're sort of criminals, they can't go to the hospital because the friend has been wounded. And so they're sort mm -hmm. of like basically holding this doctor at gunpoint and then eventually kind of his whole family dogs. at gunpoint, yeah. yeah, to try to treat him. 
And it is fun. It's like 25 minutes long, so it's super easy to watch. It's just a lot of James Dean, again, being like, hey, hey, daddy, yo, you got to fix up my friends. See, like, we're not getting out of here. And and it's, then it's just Ronald Reagan. I don't know. I just had so much fun with this. It's called The Dark, Dark Hours. I'll link to it in our show notes. Just like a really fun 25 minute watch. I, I sort of like, you know, we don't really have a comparable art form anymore to these little just like tv dramas they were short form dramas yeah it's just like a little short film basically and so i had yeah fun checking those out cool what's the well i'm kind of curious like what's the acting does he do you find like his film acting differs from his tv acting style or are we kind of getting the same kind of mumbly erratic dynamic dean yes i think it definitely is the the mumbling erratic as you put it dean of the movies but again sort of filtered through different characters in a way that made Mm -hmm. me i think appreciate him more because it's like okay he can go full kooky beat criminal beat neck criminal but then he can also be you know there's one where he's like i mentioned he's a korean war vet and he just like rolls up to a diner and he's like hey i'm just looking for a job and i always wanted to settle down with a nice girl and and he's playing a much more you know noble character Mm-hmm. And then somewhere he's a little bit more of a character actor. I mean, I haven't watched a huge, like, I haven't watched all the things that are out there by any means. But I yeah. would say it is the core of James Dean is always there, but he's also giving more, like, character-driven performances than maybe I would have anticipated. Yeah. So you can see some range. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, exactly. So that was really fun. Did you do any any Dean-related things this week? No. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I took you a- were li- No, you were looking at some pictures, I weren't you? Full- Oh, I looked at some pictures yeah. that yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah, you sent me some some pictures that I that I had to look through that are very charming. Mm-hmm. And you know, reading about for this movie, just like he- just hearing about him, I'm just starting to get like a full sense of the maverick personality mm-hmm. of him. Uh, and you can see it in these pictures. I mean, this one, this picture, you know, you from the article you pulled out the one that did that was ultimately my favorite, which is just him sitting fully in a coffin mm-hmm. in a funeral home full of coffins. But sort of uh, playfully, but also wistfully. Yeah, playful morbidity. I mm-hmm. love that. I, mm-hmm. I eat that up. That's my whole. That's my whole. Well, that's certainly my preferred method of uh, coping with my own mortality. <laughs> yeah, and playful maybe it was morbidity. for Dean's too. This is yeah. sort of what I was trying to say last week that I feel like it's it's possible to be a James Dean fan without your fandom being anchored first and foremost in his movies. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like you can be a person who's just so these photos of him just from throughout his life are so evocative that you can almost just be a fan of that image of yeah Dean as a I don't know almost like a fashion model more so than anything else really yeah just a public public person like an Instagram boyfriend or something like that yeah what the he is a little would be like today a, yeah we can get we get some of the Instagram boyfriend yeah I can see. I can see some of that. I mean, he he way pre Instagram. You can see you can see some of that in these photos. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess he was being photographed by professional photographers, but but yeah, all the sort of disaffected style, like wandering around, you know, this Times Square mm-hmm. in the rain picture with his little cigarette. Oh my god, that um, would get so many insta likes. I feel like if somebody just put that up today, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Like the photos yeah, feel very contemporary. Yes, I think also, frankly, like we have come, there is a little bit of a cycle, like I think sort of millennial culture peaking about 10 years ago was very into this sort of like pea coat, cigarette, mm. tussled hair thing, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a similar way. I mean, you know, we, we just, all generations are sort of reprocessing the fashion and style 
elements of you know let's say like 30 years previous mm-hmm. and i feel like we're doing it at a an even more like a rapid rate in the 21st century just like having a sort of a i guess now it's a little more like post 80s but i feel like 2010 thereabouts like the lou and davis era we were like we were kind of like a stylish like post 50s post 60s Lou and davis era it was also the Mad Men effect i feel like Mad mm-hmm. Men really defined style for like 2009 through 2012 yeah Mad Men sent ripples and i say this without being someone who's never watched Mad Men or inside lou and davis but i felt them you felt the effect yeah you could see them in my wardrobe look at my shoes look at my coats <laughs> you know um, I can't live outside of that. James Dean's influence on us all. So last week, we dug a little bit more into sort of the history and biography of James Dean as my attempt to make my college history major matter in life. So this week, back to sure. Caroline's history lesson, I kind of want to lay out a little bit of a history of method acting, which we did a bit on our fighter episode. Although in that episode, I had only I was summarizing what I had read from one Wikipedia article, whereas this time I have read multiple Wikipedia articles. Sure. And in fact, a couple other articles as well. But you ready I, to teach an intro level course. I think that I yep, yep. I'm sure I had teachers that prepared as little as I have prepared for this yeah. segment. And I'm ready to learn. This is a big part of Dean's persona is that he's really tied into this major shift in American acting that sort of happens in the early 1950s. And today, I would say that when somebody says the word method actor, what they mean is someone who stays in character 24-7 and is like really fucking intense about it. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like a Leonardo DiCaprio lived in the frozen woods and ate a bison liver to be in The Revenant. Or Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, didn't brush his teeth for a year in order to be in The Crucible. It's these very bizarre... Gross. Gross, <laughs> intense stories of actors. Yes. Which I think there is also a sort of sensationalized version of it, which is extended into... Actors who go so deep in that they don't even know they're not a character and they make everyone on set pretend that they are the character, which I think probably no one literally does. But it does seem like actors who are trying to play around with all the ways they can bring character mannerisms and experiences into their life. So as you say, like adjusting your diet, adjusting your hygiene if you're a gross fucker. Changing your weight, maybe. Changing your weight, absolutely. And, you know, sort of like spending time after cut has been called, maybe long after cut has been called, still inhabiting the sort of like mannerisms, Mm -hmm. maybe dialect of the character. Mm -hmm. So that's our contemporary, like that is when people say method acting, that's what they think. So take Mm -hmm. all that and throw it out the window, because that is not really what the history of method acting is. Um, The history of method acting starts in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Russia with this guy, Konstantin Stanislavski, who basically is like, hey, we have never really, you know, as a people sat down and been like, what is acting and how do you do it well? We should probably have some sort of like method or process for doing that. And this was a this was a time when acting, if you think of stage acting, was very presentational. You know, you might even think of something like in a silent film, like that style of I'm presenting this information for you, but I'm perhaps my goal is not to very authentically live in the emotional reality of this character. So Stanislavski Mm -hmm. and his whole ensemble of actors at the Moscow Art Theater basically just spend all this time sort of working on Chekhov plays, trying to figure out how to be 
an ensemble. It was very ensemble driven and basically just trying to figure out how to be authentic on stage. Mm -hmm. And so that in the, they, they spend like years doing this well into the, I think forties and fifties as well. Um, But you get this early, you know, some of their early ideas come over to America in 1923 when some members of the Moscow art theater came to perform on Broadway and a couple of them stay behind to teach sort of the early ideas of what is called the Stanislavski system. This is sort of the early ideas that that Stanislavski and his ensemble have come up with. And so then you get a whole group of American actors, directors, writers, producers who are like, hey, we want to do our own version of this. And this is in 1931, this group called the Group Theater, who come together and start producing plays and trying to formulate, you know, basically take what Stanislavski did and make it work for their, you know, world, their acting world. Um, yeah. Among the people they're in, basically the Group Theater is anyone that then is relevant to the next like two decades of acting in terms of sort of teaching starts in the group theater. And among them is the director of East of Eden, Ilya Kazan, who was an actor himself, goes on to be a successful director, stage director, before he's a film director. Mm-hmm. So and the- whose name I have never known how to produce. Ilya? Yes, you said produce instead of pronounce, but I similarly <laughs> don't quite know how to pronounce it and was panicked about it on this podcast. So I'm sorry if I said it wrong. I did try no. to look it up. I think it's Ilya. Okay. Apologize to the Kazan family if we're fucking it up. Apologies. Yeah, they, the, yeah, the Kazans. Um, yeah, this might be Kazan, Kazan. That is a question as well. Ooh, God. Whatever. I'm sorry, I derailed you. Please. No, it's okay. I could, I could use a little derailment. Okay, so where we're at now, we got the group theater. They've been pioneering this. And then out of the group theater, basically you get three main figures of acting teaching sort of the three main teachers emerge out of this and these are the people that even in like our acting classes that you know we took they're still their methods are still often part of the curriculum so these are three the three kind of big american people are stella adler sanford meisner and then lee strasberg and so the big takeaway here is that when we talk talk about method acting at least in this period of it there's not like one method really the reason it's called that is because it's the first time people were like we should have a method for acting or think about how acting should happen as opposed to just like every person kind of has their own like box of techniques and then maybe i don't know some gestures they pull up but Mm -hmm. there's no you know like a lot of things like not codified in a way i suppose yes exactly and so this is when a lot of that is getting codified And one of the groups that becomes sort of the most prominent, maybe school for what we think of as method acting is, as we mentioned last week, the actor studio. And this, by the Mm -hmm. way, is the actor studio of like inside the actor studio, people that grew up watching that program with James Lipton. James Lipton. This is the, um, if God exists, what would you like to hear him say at the pearly gates? (laughs) This is the actor studio is founded in 1940. 47 again by the difficult to pronounce Ilya Kazan and is quickly headed up by Lee Strasberg. So he was one of those three main teachers that we mentioned. And Strasberg's mm-hmm. whole thing, I think, will maybe be familiar to what we think of as the stereotype of method acting, which is really that you are you are looking inside yourself to create your character's inner psyche and neurosis and you are specifically doing that by pulling from your own life so he had this whole thing called effective memory or emotional recall or sense memory where basically the idea is my character is sad because their mom has died i can't quite 
access that emotion because my mom hasn't died, but I can think about a time when my grandmother died. And so I will, before the scene, I will remember every detail of my grandmother's funeral and I'll have the smells and the sounds and I'll put myself in that headspace and re-experience the emotion of what I was feeling at that funeral and that will make me cry. And then the audience will, you know, perceive that as my character being sad that my mother died. This whole Strasbourg method is like very much its own thing that I don't think Stanislavski was going for. And you have Stella Adler, who is, again, one of those other big three uh, teachers. And she basically just like thinks Strasbourg is an idiot. Like they seem to really not like each other. There's there's a maybe apocryphal story that on the day he died in 1982, she told her acting class and said it will take 100 years for the American theater to recover from the damage that man has caused. (laughs) Oh my God. Which is an incredible burn. (laughs) What a eulogy. And so her whole thing was much more text-based, much more research-based. And she was basically like, just use your imagination to think of the given circumstances that your character's in and basically just like pretend. (laughs) Sort of like Mm -hmm. informed pretending. And sort of researching if you, you know, you're playing a coal miner from the 1800s, maybe learn a little bit about that so that you can inform what your character's doing. And then less relevant to this discussion, but the other of the big three is Meisner, who actually was the one that I did the most in my acting classes in college. But he was much more behavioral and sort of you're doing these behavioral like exercises to get yourself out of your head. Did you guys not do Meisner in your classes? No. Um, in your so, acting class? Ned and I were in different acting classes. Yeah. And at, at our school, it was like you 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 get paired with an acting teacher at the beginning of your sophomore year, and then you basically see them a couple times a week, every week f- until you graduate for the mm-hmm. next three years. I was with David Catlin. I would not say that David Catlin taught us any particular like named school of acting. There was very little mention of any of these people. Mm. I'd say Meisner is the one whose method kind of exists the most in the in the cultural lexicon as a sort of a satirical version of itself. I mean, my sense of Meisner is just saying like, I have to go to the store. You have to go to the store. I have to go to the store. You have to go to the store. I have to go to the store. I have to go to the store. I have to go to the store. And like- We did so much of this in my acting class. Yeah, so the idea of like, you just repeat it until- I think I think the idea as I've absorbed it is you repeat it until you find the honest version mm-hmm. and then the scene may proceed. Mm-hmm. But I've never actually been led through that in a serious way. I've kind of only like encountered the spoof version of it. We but did you've it, done it. We did it a lot. I quite enjoyed it. It is definitely silly, but I kind of feel like the silliness is the point because it's just, I don't know, it's, it's getting you out of your head in a weird way because you're just forced mm-hmm. to repeat this until it's... It's like breaking down your vulnerabilities, but I think in a less toxic way, right? You're not like, mm-hmm. I'm crushing my soul with trauma. It's more like, oh, I'm doing this weird thing until I'm snapping out of how awkward it feels, and then I'm able to move past it. Mm-hmm. I guess Strasbourg would be like, tell us about a time you were bullied in high school, because this, this scene is going to take you to a dark place. I mean, it's weird where it gets where it gets mixed up with like institutional acting classes, mm-hmm. a thing that... I have come to have complicated feelings about. I mean, I'll just say I had a very positive experience I felt in my acting classes. Now, the method that we were sort of doing was a lot of like, it was it was very sort of like physical experiential. I guess it might be closer to, I don't know whose it would be close to, because it was a lot of like, you're being, I mean, it's going to sound very like spoofy when I describe it. It'll be like, you're facing the prospect of being like walled in by society. Like we're going to build a wall of chairs around you. Mm. Like you are watching this seagull 
fly around, like be a seagull, like run around the space. So let's like you're you're doing the Greeks. The Greeks were like larger than life. Let's go out to the lake to see something that is larger than life, that is epic, and let's like shout at it. You know, that sounds fun. I miss acting class. I had so much fun in acting class. Yeah, it was a blast. I mean, what's not to like? I mean, like I think the sophomore year early on, the the sort of one where I was like, is this for real? Like what I'm doing in college while some people are it was like we built a rocket ship out of chairs you know there was some pretend play which i talked about last week but i had a positive experience i had a positive experience partially because i feel like i was becoming a director Mm -hmm. without knowing it some people in my class who really like they wanted to be actors in their career i think might have been better served paired with another teacher doing something that was a little bit more, or honestly, like going to a conservatory school, which Mm -hmm. ours was not. It was a liberal arts school. I think they might have been better off in a more like traditionally acting craft focused thing. But it was a very, um, it was a very interesting like workshop environment for me. And you were with, you were with Mary. Yes. I was with the wonderful Mary Poole. We really felt, actually mainly what we felt, I was showing Ned before we started recording. I pulled out like all my acting school books. I was getting very Mm -hmm. nostalgic. The main thing we followed, which actually... If there's actors out there listening to it, I would so highly recommend this book. It's called The Practical Handbook for Actors. Mm. And it's written by a bunch of people that I believe were at the – it's like a group of actors themselves who are at the Atlantic Theater Company. And they learned under David Mamet and William H. Macy. And they basically wrote this like Mm. really thin, very practical book that's just – I mean, it's called The Practical Handbook for the Actor. But it really is breaking down just like here's very concrete steps you can take to be a – good actor and i think it is it is kind of a hybrid of the stella adler method and the meisner method in that it's very based in like you want to find an action for each each scene that you are playing so that rather than saying like Mm -hmm. in the scene i will play the fact that i'm sad that's not really something that's easy or tangible to do so so you could say like you know i want my my boyfriend to confess his love to me and so every everything i'm every line i'm reading in the scene what i'm thinking in my head is like i want him to say he loves me i want him to say he loves me and so then me feeling sad will come because there is no dialogue where he says that Mm -hmm. anyway i think this book is great it is one of those things where you know there's all these methods and then they get filtered all the way down and it's not like these are the only three like you said this rocket ship thing you guys are doing sounds like that could be a whole other school of acting that is not any of these So to get us back to, so I'm actually, the one thing I couldn't find in my research was where this like contemporary idea of method acting comes from, the sort of Daniel Day-Lewis become the character style. The only thing I can think of is to point to Robert De Niro, who actually was taught by both Lee Strasberg, who's the intense recall your trauma guy, and Mm -hmm. Stella Adler, who's very much the sort of research-based, text-based lady. And I feel like maybe De Niro combined those two things and came up with this idea of like, have the intensity of actually doing whatever your character does. Mm-hmm. And then everyone started copying De Niro. This part is more of just my own invented thesis. There might be more writing out there that that explains all of this more. But I'm blaming and or thanking Bobby De Niro for our current brand of method acting. I mean, it seems it has to have happened in the second half of the 20th century because it's so attached to film. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think you see this so much happening in theater. Because theater just is more, prag- you have to be more pragmatic if you're doing eight shows a week. Yes. You can't yeah, yeah, strip yeah. yourself that bare every time. Exactly. You can't like go, you can't go into the freezing cold for starters. Mm-hmm. You can't become, can't do anything that's going to physically like make you in incapable like you have to be like have the energy to like repeat it time and time again 
you have to like be able to leave a scene and then like go make your cue coming in to do the next thing, which might be a little while later. So yeah. you can't be like, I'm going to stay up all night before this. Right. I mean, you get these little things. I remember uh, an actor in Stratford, Canada, where I used to go a lot in middle and high school and like where I went to camp. This is the festival. If anybody's ever watched Slings and Arrows, this is the festival and town that that's based on a phenomenal show so good and a really i think special theatrical place mm-hmm. um i mean for you know for people living in uh, metro detroit that is like that's a big uh, cultural destination because it's just three hours three hour drive but this actor graham abbey who i really admired talked about how when he was playing macbeth he would like he would sit in the dark for half an hour you know before the show began some people have playlists that they listen to but that's like about as method as you can get on the night. You can do things in rehearsal mm-hmm. that get kind of weird, very exploratory. And I actually, I really like in rehearsal, in in theater, doing exercises that are designed to explore something and get you to a certain place. But you're just kind of trying to activate it. I mean, that's one thing. You know, the table work you do, which is very analytical, very text-based, very, I guess, Stella Adlery. Mm-hmm is sort of another thing. And then my belief is you have to do all these things and then kind of forget them. You kind of like throw them into the pot and then in the moment on stage, you just see what happens. At least that's my like onstage philosophy is like you do all this stuff in rehearsal just to get it into the pot and then let impulse take over. And then hopefully those things will have done their work. They've gotten into your brain. Mm -hmm. Ned, you have have provided me with so many perfect transitions because I do think you're right that this Method acting of the 1940s and 50s, late 40s, early 50s, really does become more a medium of film than theater. And the person mm-hmm. who really brings it to Hollywood is our impossible to pronounce uh, Ilya Kazan. He's He starts with the group theater. He is one of the founding members of the actor studio, where, as we mentioned last week, James Dean studies. Marlon Brando studies there a little bit, although Brando was always said that he was a student of Adler and like got pissed off that Strasberg tried to claim him as one of his students. So again, lots oh. of little rivalries that happened here. But like Kazan, that. he directs Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway and then brings him to Hollywood and casts him in that film. Uh, which comes out in 1951. Then Kazan works with Brando again on the waterfront in 1954. And then, as we're talking about today, East of Eden in 1955 with James Dean. And those, I would think, along with some other Brando performances and some Montgomery Cliff performances, those are sort of the films that are really solidifying this new idea of method acting for film, for the American public. And East of Eden is like definitely a big part of this shift and james dean himself is a big part of this sort of revolutionary shift in acting that's happening around now Mm -hmm. which it is just interesting to think about like the electricity of these films has also to do with novelty in the sense that i think if you gave basically an east of eden style performance today i mean i guess just everyone basically tries to i mean this kind of thing becomes so dominant i feel i mean i guess comedy is something different but in drama i feel like we are always sort of looking or almost always sort of looking for something a little bit methody a little bit unpredictable are we or aren't we Meth- well, methody in the, the thing, like, i think in the classic sense way. yeah exactly i think yeah. basically what this 1950s you know hallowed period that we refer to as method acting basically it's just what today we would call acting 
Like, I think you're totally right that it's just they were pioneering this idea of being naturalistic. And now that is so normalized that we've almost had to give method acting a different term because we want to capture the sense of intensity that was happening around Marlon Brando. But now everyone is a Marlon Brando. So we have to make this other tier of the Daniel Day-Lewis's and, you know, the Christian Bales and the Leo DiCaprio's who are going full out in a different way. But I think you're totally right that it is just a naturalism that is the standard now. And if anything, these 1950s movies look far more heightened than what we would consider naturalism to be today. Yes. Yes. But I can see how they must have just like popped off the screen with sort of like human animation Mm -hmm. at the time. And it's a very dynamic thing to watch. Yes. And one thing about... Ilya Kazan that I think is sort of relevant for you and me is that he had spent a lot of time as an actor. He went to the Yale School of Drama. He studied at Juilliard. And so he was always very much known as an actor's director. And so that sort of tied into the fact that he is launching Dean. As we said, this is Dean's first film or first leading role, at least. And he had, uh, Kazan had seen Dean, sort of knew him through the actor's studio and had seen him in some of those plays we were talking about last week, flies him out for an audition. I think it was, it was reportedly the first time James Dean had ever been on a plane was to fly out to audition for this movie. And yeah, I'm so excited to get into what you thought of this movie, Ned. I know you said this was a first viewing for you so like hit me with your your general east of eden thoughts what are my general i uh, i i liked it uh let's see let's see it is interesting i mean i'll say again it is another movie and this might just have to do with me not being a 1950s person but i had a hard time at first getting a read on like what i was being set up to watch mm-hmm. it's not dissimilar to rebel without a cause in that way where the plot in fact, it is far more unusually structured than Rebel. Rebel Without a Cause has one scene that throws you off and then goes on to be a normal movie. East of Eden is like never a normal movie the entire time you're watching it. No, I mean, I guess like what I would say from the end looking back is it's about a young man, a teen boy maybe, named Cal Trask, who is just sort of constantly struggling with how to be in the world and what to make of himself and how to relate to his family and the world but the like the the specifics of it are so tricky i mean it it starts with him sort of following this woman around that i you're not at all clear on like who she is or what he wants with her it's like borne out in the course in like due course of time that she is his mother, whom he was told all his life was dead. And went to heaven. And had, Yeah, my, my mom isn't dead and gone to heaven. He's been told that she died and went to heaven, and instead she's actually across the mountains from the quaint farming town of Salinas. She's in the rough-and-tumble harbor town of Monterey, running, I guess, a brothel? Mm-hmm. At she's first I was of- like, I thought it was a bar, but... The sense that I get is that she sort of like maybe started as just like a workaday sex worker and grew up to basically be like an incredible girl boss. Like there's a framing of this movie that that she has become sort of like a madam who's running multiple brothel houses. She has a bar that she runs. She really seems to just be, you know, like really impressive in her business acumen. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, total proto girl boss vibes, I suppose. Although I hate to say that. <laughs> it's such a such a, a reductive and like stupid Maybe this is the way to use it. Yes. Um so that's what you eventually figure out. But at first, it's just like a boy in a sweater is like stalking a woman, mm-hmm. but can't really seem to articulate what he wants from her or even why he wants to follow her. Mm-hmm. 
and then the plot kind of moves away from that, and it's about a you know a boy who just like behaves like a shit towards his brother and dad in a way that he also doesn't seem to really understand. And then it becomes about a boy who actually like he doesn't want to be a shit anymore. He wants to be like a he wants to pay his dad back and like work hard and sort of like start this business venture. And then there's a a romance about you know where he sort of starts to develop feelings for the woman that his brother has been attached to and yeah the plot kind of meanders i mean mean, meanders is a little it's not it doesn't feel aimless but the plot kind of goes to a number of different places which i think is that can happen when you adapt a novel Mm -hmm. this is an unusual case so this is as you say a john steinbeck novel from just from 1952 like this was a in the way that you know you'll get a bestseller and they'll make a They'll Girl make with a movie. dragon tattoo. Yeah, like exactly. A, two years after, yeah. it's funny to think about now because I think Steinbeck is so revered, and you know James Dean and this this movie is so revered. But it really was just like, oh, this is a popular book. Let's make a movie of it. Let's make a movie. But the unusual thing about this, so I haven't read the book itself, but it is far more meandering than the film, in that it is a multi generational sort of. I think even maybe starting in like Civil War era times, look at these families in the Salinas area. And it's really just the final fourth of the novel that is sort of a riff on or a retelling of the biblical story of Cain and Abel that's about these two brothers. And then for Mm -hmm. the movie adaptation, they basically they're like, let's um, because Anna's like, let's take just the final fourth of that. And in fact, let's sort of reconfigure that so that we're solely focusing or, or mostly focusing on Cal, which is the James Dean character. So it is mm-hmm. a loose adaptation in, yeah. in every sense. And I think that that does partly lend to the sort of unnerving quality of this film. Like if I had to sum it up. Unnerving, I yeah. Agree the I pl- agree. Yes. I ag- And I agree that the plot is like meandering. And if I had to sum it up, I would say that it's a like just a coming of age story ultimately. But it's a mm-hmm. coming of age story that's like filmed like a horror movie. Like, I really found this movie deeply upsetting to watch. I enjoyed it. Unlike in True Lies, where there was a movie I watched when I was younger, and I found it upsetting. And when I revisited it, I was like, I understand why I was upset then, and I'm still upset now. This was a movie that I watched when I was younger, found deeply upsetting. But then in revisiting it as an older adult, I'm like, I get why I thought it was upsetting, but I think it's upsetting in a good way as opposed to a bad way. Mm -hmm. But it is so unnerving. Like, I would say the thing I wrote most repeatedly in my notes was, oh, no. (laughs) It felt like (laughs) everything was going wrong. And I was like, no, 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 it's spiraling out of control. Even though it's ultimately a fairly small scale family drama. You could make this as as a calm, perhaps even quirky, like indie family drama if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. But this movie is not in that tone at all. Yeah, it does feel it does not quite hit the apocalyptic highs and lows of other things. And I I kind of even expected my Steinbeck background is I read The Red Pony in seventh grade and despised it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's so dumb and gross. And then like two years later, my English teacher, who was a brilliant, brilliant woman named Colleen, I was like, why do we read that stupid book? She's like, and then she kind of like framed it. She kind of was like, here's the idea of why that's cool. And I was like, oh, damn, that was really good. It's just like Steinbeck was looking at this kind of like sometimes ugly, sometimes nasty, like lower class, basic American frontier life. And I was like, oh, that's cool. But I've read very little. I've seen both Of Mice and Men Mm -hmm. and Grapes of Wrath adapted for the stage. In fact, former guest Emily Marceau was in Grapes of Wrath at the Gift Theater in Chicago. That was a great production. Definitely, I had a sense 
of the sort of fatalism of it. I mean, Grapes of Wrath is sort of like, it's an almost a spectacularly miserable, like, slide downhill into failure with just like defeat after defeat and like casualty after casualty. And, you know, like constant, like, optimism pulled from the depths of despair to be, of course, like, dashed. Such that in this, you know, when he's, when he's like, I'm going to put all this lettuce on a train and the ice will keep it cold. I'm like, no, no, it won't do. Your, your, your lettuce is, is fucked from jump. So honestly, I was surprised that certain things like did work in this. But I guess something going well is, of course, just setting you up to be hurt more mm-hmm. in the future. Yeah, I never really jived with Steinbeck. I never had the wonderful teacher that showed me how to love him. Um, uh-huh. I, I as well have not read a ton. I read of Mice and Men. I read some short story called The Pearl. I don't know. He has a miserableism that... Miserableism. I think I only like... this. I like sad things, but I tend to like sad things when they're British and not when they're American. (laughs) American sadness I don't hugely relate to for some reason. I need it to all be repressed and for no one to be expressing anything, and then I will find it devastating. You have an an anglophilic prejudice in your miserableism. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is something, I can't speak, I have not read the East of Eden book, so I can't speak Mm -hmm. to that, but I do think that there is something in this movie that is just unnerving, and maybe Mm -hmm. in a compelling way. The the basic setup, we got into the sort of the character dynamic, but it's set in 1917, sort of on the eve of America's involvement in World War One, and I think part of what's so unnerving about this is that it, it doesn't really follow storytelling rules. Mm -hmm. in the way that you would expect it to like the inciting incident of this film we don't even we don't see it on screen and we don't even really come to understand it until like a third of the way through but the inciting incident is that cal who's james dean the troubled son has been told by someone that his mom is this lady that runs the brothel named kate and so Mm -hmm. that so we catch him at a moment where even though he's always kind of been a troubled kid it feels like we're also catching him at his most chaotic or most tortured tortured Yeah. yeah thank you and and so, but we don't quite understand why he is just behaving so strangely. And that is in comparison to his brother, Aaron, who's sort of the golden child that their dad loves. And mm-hmm. sort of the idea is that Aaron represents everything that's good and Cal represents everything that's bad. And Cal is sort of searching for an answer to the question of why he is bad and when he finds out sort of who his mother is he's like well maybe i inherited all my badness from her although then i think the movie goes on to really complicate what starts out as this very simple biblical setup very explicitly so because the dad whose name is adam is very religious and is sort of instilling these like black and white religious values into his children that i think the movie then goes on to complicate and sort of find a lot of gray areas in Mm -hmm. yeah you have the dad following a religious straight and narrow path and sort of like displaying piety and the mom running a brothel and then you in a way that i guess i questioned even less first because i'm i'm already set up to sort of like i guess with my modern lens like see you know puritanism as very Mm -hmm. suspect but then you also frankly like Calvin is like, he's really like a shit in the first third of the movie. I mean, I kind of already said that. And Aaron just seems so nice. I don't know if you Mm. can recall this, having seen this before and also looking back from where we get to at the end of the movie. But I was like, Aaron just seems so awesome. He's so nice to his dad. He's so patient and forgiving of Cal. He loves Cal. Cal's basically constantly being a dick and like creeping on them and like throwing all this ice out of the ice house, which in an awesome image, but just like 
So stressful too. Every scene so in this movie is so stressful. <laughs> yes, uh, just so stressful. Just seeing him like wreck shit in a way that is clearly just like in answer to his like weird chaotic impulses. And of course, as the movie is borne out, we more and more see Cal's like deep hurt and like his honestly his like genuine striving. You know, I think it's for the first twenty minutes you could just see a guy who, like not only is he like really mean, but he like he he's exhibiting this air of not caring which i think mm-hmm. you feel as it goes along like that's an honest like a very you know sort of understandable thing for a tortured teenager to display like genuinely to be like i want to do the wrong thing because i have no way to process what i'm feeling mm-hmm. um i think that's very identifiable but he definitely feels like a kid that you would say like has behavioral issues like he's not just a normal moody teen it, it feels like there's something that's more severe happening with him although again yeah. it's never quite you know solidified or like diagnosed as it wouldn't have been either in the 50s or in the in 1917 but it feels like his behavior is more unusual than you know than like jim stark and rebel without a cause if anything i think he's a little bit more like plato Mm-hmm. from rebel yes. without a cause although even more almost like well i guess plato does get pretty violent but more violent not like i just have a gun and i'm gonna shoot you but more like lashing out and and leaping at people and there's like yeah, a physicality aggressive to yeah i will say though i had almost i really don't like aaron i think that the actor is really bad actually richard davalos oh, is his do name. You? yeah i hmm. thought he was terrible oh, and i find I'm not sure i feel that way the Aaron character, like the idea of him is cool. I just feel like it's so strange that this movie seems like it's going to be a brother story, but then I feel like they never do anything with Aaron or Aaron as the dad calls him at one point. <laughs> hey, Aaron. Yeah, they do not have a lot of brother stuff, except for like in the very first, like really they kind of only have the one scene where the three of them are walking together and he's like, are you going to come see dad by the ice house? I don't know. I wonder if I went back and looked at it if I would feel the same way. It is interesting that I kind of thought he would be central and then the kind of the movie kind of leaves him for a mm-hmm. while. I guess he didn't have much of a career that I know of. He's very handsome. Yeah, um, but in kind of a blank way. I, I was actually thinking... I think he's just handsome in a yeah. handsome way. But, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, welcome, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> We're really getting our... Di- you know, we don't disagree on much, but apparently this Richard Davalos is our disagreement point he's just a handsome guy with great <laughs> hair and i'll stand by he feels that. like he should be in like a beach blanket bingo movie sure <laughs> less so know. than a john steinbeck adaptation yes he does look kind of beachy yeah with the blonde hair yeah um so yeah you're right that it's not really it's not really a brother story it is a father-son story and then the mm-hmm. other sort of second most component is that it's a romance Mm-hmm. And I think I I do quite like the father-son story, and I do quite like the romance, which is sort of a love triangle where you've got Aaron and Abra. Is that how they say her name? Abra, yeah. Such a such Like Abracadabra. Unusual, yeah, such an unusual name. Yeah, and Played then by, one point in the middle, I was like, are they saying Barbara? But no, yeah. it's Abra. I thought it was like Alma. I really was struggling. Yeah, no. She's she's sort of been, you know, childhood sweethearts with Aaron and and is both terrified and like enticed by cal mm-hmm. like there are some scenes it's julie harris is the actress that plays her who's a sort of a, was a legendary stage actress at this point she also comes out of the actor's studio actually oh, was she oh mm-hmm. cool i think she's great in this movie i think she's really great in this movie yeah. i completely agree i think she's and so compelling she also adds to the unnerving quality like when she's freaked out by cal it's not like ooh, that's a creepy like my boyfriend's brother's kind of weird there's like a scene in the ice house where she's like we need to hide from him like he can see us wherever we are and he's haunting us uh, yeah yeah well, she 
gives a shudder when she says, I feel like he can still see mm-hmm. us now. And then yeah. the, the next scene is like a very flirty scene at the picnic. Like their dynamic similarly is all over the place in a way that is like messy, but cool. Yeah, it's cool, I guess, in the real life way. Although it does feel I'm like something must have transpired here, right? Honestly, like there is a that and the him working, like working really hard on the mm-hmm. lettuce venture. It almost feels like there's a scene missing. Like, I don't know what it is that causes him to jump besides just like you're a teenager and one day you you get over something and you just move on to something else. Yes. There are a couple of scenes where, you know, if we're framing this as a coming of age story, I do think we meet Cal at his lowest. And there are a couple sort of turning point scenes. The one where he actually basically like learns the truth about his mom and then decides to be a better son to the dad. Mm-hmm. Is I do actually think there is a cut scene. I was watching. There's like a deleted scene on YouTube. I think it would go right there, which is actually oh. between Caleb and Aaron. It's like in their bedroom, and Aaron is like, "Hey, you should try to be nicer to our dad. Like, you know, wow. he would like you if you're nicer to him." So your instincts huh. were right on that there was a there was a beat that was cut there. Hmm. And yeah, basically, I would say the core of this movie is the idea that the dad has just you know he says at one point he's like i always got aaron like he was easy to raise but i sort of just never understood cal and mm-hmm. you get the sense that the dad does not necessarily think he's treated the boys differently but maybe without meaning to he has been the one that has really put cal in the quote unquote bad category like there's a scene where he lashes out and he's just like you're bad you've always been bad and then he's like oh sorry oh, yeah. i didn't mean that but you're like whoa what a fucked up thing to say to your kid like yeah. and how long have you sort of been using this language around him it's interesting because the movie like really it really has a sense of the history the the family history that precedes it mm-hmm. like it's so and this might have to do with it being the last fourth of a book but the relationship between the father and mother who never have a scene together the whole movie is so important in the way in which if you just happen to like peek in on a family at this point in time Everything that had gone before would be very important. And also, I do agree, there's an interesting thing where you can't tell if Cal is just acting out or you don't really have a sense of the chicken or the egg with the father Mm -hmm. treating him as the bad kid versus him doing these behaviors. And I do think, frankly, with his, like, at his low point, you just sort of have the sense of, like, because they keep sort of saying, like, we just want you to help out and be kind to us. You do sort of be like, why is he acting so contrarian? But then as the movie goes along, you start to wonder, like, has he always treated the kid as bad? And and what does that have to do with the mom? I mean, it feels like the movie, like Cal is preoccupied with this idea, sort of an older idea that I think probably a lot of people like took seriously in a way that maybe fewer would now. The idea that you just might inherit the personality of your parents. Yeah. I feel like you see this in older fiction, the idea that like literally... As if genetically, the badness of an ancestor might like manifest in mm-hmm. you. I feel like that was something that was sort of, you know, discussed with a straight face in the past. And yeah. he's really preoccupied with that. But then you can sort of look at this and wonder if actually there's this element of what he really inherited was, you know, the the way that his father treated him and the sort of like the legacy mm-hmm. of the mom. And like, how would that affect him psychologically and affect their their home and maybe divide them into a good and bad basket i think what i connected to most in this movie as a person who actually is very intrigued by questions of morality and questions of good or bad Mm -hmm. i feel like one of you know a potential thesis of this movie is that in in adam and aaron in the dad and the brother they just have this inner sense that they are good people they have classified themselves that way and that Mm -hmm. actually what that does is allows them to be very judgmental and cruel to other people that they have classified as bad Mm -hmm. whereas cal who 
feels like he exists in this moral gray area or the sense of badness, he is actually able to be much less judgmental and more he is able to evolve in a way that I think Adam and Aaron struggle with. They're more locked in. And I do think this movie is ultimately sort of condemning some of those puritanical black and white religious ideas in favor of a more I mean this is this is also the dad's speech. He's like the difference between people and animals is that people can change. People can make a choice to be good or bad. And so he's always trying to inspire Cal to make the choice to be good. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like Cal is the one that teaches the dad more than the dad is the one that teaches Cal. Yeah. I think the movie is sympathetic to the dad at the end. I kind of wasn't sure if he would just be like kind of a blowhard antagonist. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated, he's an interesting character. I agree. And and I, I, I like the performance of uh, Raymond Massey in I that role. I do too. There's a weird, he will be very mean and cruel and stern, but then he'll sort of catch himself and be softer. Mm-hmm. In a way that yeah. I think is very believable. It's interesting. Apparently, he and Dean really hated each other because they came oh, from such dear. different acting schools. Like, Dean came from this, you know, experimental method school, and Massey came from a much more traditional background. Uh, he but, doesn't have any mumbling to him. I'll say yeah, that. exactly. But then, so this is the thing, which I also want to talk about, like, Kazan as the famed actor's director. Mm-hmm. Kazan was very inventive in the way he would sort of get interesting performances from his actors sort of Mm -hmm. i think sometimes working very collaboratively and in a really positive way with them like i think most people speak really highly of him but i think he would do these sort of sneaky tactics as well like he said that when when massey would come to him and be like hey this thing dean is doing is really annoying to me can you get him to stop and he'd be like yeah yeah i'm gonna talk to him right now and then he wouldn't talk to him so when dean continued to do it to do the thing it would make massey more angry but that would like lead to a conflict that was interesting on screen. Mm-hmm. So he kind of leaned into the actors not liking each other behind the scenes or at least did not step in to resolve that oh, and sort of let yeah. that, you know, become palpable on screen in a way. I will, as I said last week about the sort of like sort of self-indulgent excesses of method acting, I will be similarly charitable, I think, to a director doing this in the 50s. But the thing that is the sort of like unfortunate legacy of this whole sort of thing, we've talked a lot about the the sort of like toxic terror of the self-indulgent narcissistic method actor mm-hmm. and totally tied up in there is this equally dangerous myth that people just love of the director like torturing their actors to get a cool performance. I mean, all these, I feel like stories, probably not in our, I don't know sensitive progressive lefty artist circle that has actually like spent time in artistic processes and probably all of us witnessed some really toxic behavior in including like this is sort of a chicago specific thing i don't know how many people like around the nation are familiar with the sort of like the major expose of profiles theater i think it was called and a an actor by the name of daryl cox but there was a kind of like a bombshell six years ago where this like one of the most incredible pieces of local investigative journalism in, I think, Time Out Chicago, or The Reader. I should get these facts straight. But it was essentially this, like, jaw-dropping major expose of a history of toxic behavior at this theater, sort of perpetuated by its lead actor and uh, enabled by a crew of enablers, that, like all kinds of abuse, like, was able to go on because the victims of it were sort of, like, put into boxes and prevented from communicating or, like, testifying. And it was not just a 
takedown of this theater. Although I'm sure that like certain people were able to say, okay, then now this theater and this individual have been routed and we can pat ourselves on the back. We were never complicit. It really like completely was this moment of looking back at all these things that in my sort of heady college days, I probably really would have admired all this like real stage slaps, real provocative exercises to get people riled up at each other. I think we have this problem in theater and film of continuing to sort of admire, along with people who torture themselves, I think there's sort of even more insidious is directors who who torture their actors, mm-hmm. or, or I guess equally actors who torture other actors, but mm-hmm. people who basically create unstability, chaos, and pain, <laughs> to put it bluntly, in a creative space in order to foment intensity and, you know, provoke an intense reaction. I don't know, that might be a little bit of a tangent, but I am intrigued by these stories of Kazan doing this. And also, like, it is always interesting to read of like, you know, like I talked about the Warriors last week, I think that, you know, the the certain gangs on the Warriors were kept separate, because they wanted to have genuine, like, Mm -hmm. crackling tension in the air when those gangs would square off on screen. It's a fine line with that shit, I think, because basically, my problem is with those Kazan imitators, these like, you know, gung ho director cowboys who are like, I'm gonna create a genuine animosity between my actors mm-hmm. because like look at some of the the greatest films of american cinema and how kazan did that with raymond massey and james dean and look at the palpable simmering tension that was created between those actors in every scene i think kazan's interesting he has an interesting balance of this because some stories were like okay i'm gonna rile up my actors to dislike each other but then other stories were like i think james dean himself could tend towards like bad punkish behavior as we discussed last week and in that in those cases kazan would actually reel him in like i think kazan kind of became a defender of the crew sort of on james dean's behalf or there was a lot of just like he had he had james dean live with the actor that played aaron for a while but that wasn't working so out so well so he sort of had james dean like live somewhere right near the studio so they could really be sort of chaperoned throughout this process so there was a weird mix of sort of You know, maybe it was a little bit of that you you do what you have to do attitude. And sometimes that meant riling up Dean and sometimes that meant reining him in. Mm -hmm. I do think it's interesting that on the whole, I think in comparison to Rebel Without a Cause and the way that we were talking about last week, like it seemed like Nicholas Ray was really leaning into just letting James Dean do whatever he wants, Mm -hmm. which I think you see in those sort of like big explosive acting moments on screen. I, you even mm-hmm. can sense in this performance that it feels like Kazan is is reeling him in in a way. Like, I think he has less of those big, explosive, shouty moments in East of Eden than mm-hmm. he did in Rebel Without a Cause. And and when they do happen, they're sort of very purposeful and pointed. And it sort of, I wonder if Kazan, I mean, I actually think there's some quote where Nicholas Ray has said that he thought that Kazan was the best director of actors that America had ever produced. So I wonder if oh, there was wow. a certain touch that Kazan had with Dean that that as for as much as I love the performance in Rebel Without a Cause, that maybe Ray didn't quite have. It's interesting to hear you say that because what that immediately makes me think of is even just artistically in the like aim of the film, Rebel Without a Cause really seems to revolve around Jim Stark. Like everyone's like orbiting him. Mm-hmm. It's especially in those scenes with the parents where like literally they'll just sort of like ring him and circle around him, and he really is the like gravitational center of the movie it feels even though judy and plato have their plots it does feel like everyone is kind of like drawn into his gravity and 
Cal is kind of the POV character of this, but it does feel, I don't know, a little bit more ensemble-y. Mm-hmm. You know, in these scenes, it feels like all the other characters. I mean, part of it is like the father in East of Eden, Adam Trask, is more of a character. The movie is more interested in his his individuality and character than Rebel Without a Cause is in the father of Jim Stark. Mm-hmm. Thurston Howell III. Thurston Howell III. It's a very different kind of performance for a very different style. I mean, the parents in Rebel Without a Cause are a lot more sort of almost like farcical. They're, they're not farcical because they play in real drama scenes, but it's just un- us unable to shake Gilligan's Island from our head. But, <laughs> but they do feel a little bit a little bit goofier. And this, it feels like, I don't know, he's sort of paired up with equals a lot more often. In his mm. scenes with... In his scenes with Abra, in his scenes with his father, in his scenes with his mother, which I just love, um, even just in composition of the shots, uh, you know, like shots of like him, there's, there's these shots where he's talking with his mom and the scene where they finally have a conversation where it's just kind of like them facing at each other and the scene where he's just arguing with his father at the dinner table and they're sitting sort of at odds and his scene in the field with Abra and then later on in the Ferris wheel, incredible shot. It feels like it's a little bit more ensemble And so I can see a little bit how, as a director, you wouldn't be looking at this saying like, well, let me just give Dean the sort of like free reign to lead these scenes wherever mm. they have to go. Although I'm sure that he he was given the free reign to like make his acting choices still, but it doesn't feel like he was directing these scenes, you know, in the way that we kind of heard yes. that was sometimes happening in Rebel Without a Cause. I definitely agree that it feels like Dean is less of the, the driver of all of the acting styles of the scene. But I actually think one of my main takeaways from East of Eden was I kind of couldn't believe how much it was centered on Cal, especially Mm -hmm. for this to be Dean's first role. Like, I feel like he is in the vast majority of shots and scenes in this movie. It opens on him. I mean, we see, we see the mother, Kate, we see her walking, but her face is covered. But we, you know, the first big shot, it's like, there's James Dean. He's starring in this movie. Like, he's the next big thing. It is such a, Mm -hmm. Kazan really puts so much on Dean's shoulders in terms of carrying this movie even if it is i think you're right the feeling of it cal feels of a piece with with all the rest of it Mm -hmm. but just by how much story weight you know he carries um one of kazan's things was just i think i think he was one of those people that said you know some some statement like 90 percent of acting is in the casting or something like that and he really wanted to cast actors who he felt like shared qualities with the character. And he really connected to this idea of James Dean had sort of a troubled relationship with his own father, who as we talked about last week, when Dean's mother died when he was young, he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle, so sort of grew up with them and his, as his parental figures. And then his dad, I think, sometimes had like a disapproval about his, you know, choice to go into acting. Um, and Kazan uh-huh. himself also had a really difficult relationship with his dad and so he was both connecting with dean over that and then realizing that would be the right fit for the project as a whole and he would do there's some quote where he said of dean because ann was like when i met him he said i'll take you for a ride on my motorbike it was his way of communicating with me saying i hope you like me he sort of goes on to say that like he learned you know dean's story with his own father and then was like this is the kid like we have to cast him in this so in that yeah. sense, it's sort of like using an actor's innate quality, also collaborating with an actor to get an interesting performance, also sort of sometimes manipulating actors to get a good performance. It's like three different tactics that Kazan was using to get these performances. I think that's really fun. Another little acting anecdote from my life is one of my last acting roles 
was a few years ago when I was in Three Sisters, speaking of Chekhov, mm-hmm. at The Hypocrites. And that was a production where it was crazy to sort of like realize as the rehearsals and then production went along how much everyone had basically just been cast as themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to like slam dunk at anybody, but everybody had the seeds of their character in them for better and for worse. I mean, I was playing I was playing a tiny, tiny role. I was Fedotic, who's one of the like little soldier boys. But I basically just got to like, you know, hang out and vibe around and just like have a big flaming crush in arena and be kind of like sweet and dopey about it, which was just like, I feel like me being turned loose into my natural mode. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, like it was a moment where I just think about the wisdom of casting people in roles that allow them to pull on you know not just like in the i guess wait what would that be the strasberg (laughs) method of saying what's something you've done that's sort of obliquely like this but Mm -hmm. just casting people in roles that sort of have elements of their own personalities in them another acting touchdown for me is my friend royer bacchus a really incredible actor whom we also went to school with who I just remember talking to her. She's acted a lot at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I've seen her a number of times there. She's incredible. And she kind of talks about her whole acting style and is like, I can't conjure up someone completely different. All I can do is think to myself, if I were in this situation, how would I behave in this moment? And that's Mm -hmm. all I can do. And that leads me, that allows me to act the part. Like that's all I could, like I don't, I don't pull up some other person's like mannerisms. Obviously, just pour myself into this and see what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Working with actors was definitely my favorite part of directing. Like I loved it so much. And I would do actually, because Anne talks about this too, like he would just take his actors out to dinner and sort of just get their vibe and as to what they could play on screen, but I think also just to see how to work with them. And that was something I did with this production of History Boys we keep mentioning, but I would sort of have meetings with each of the actors Mm -hmm. and sort of just try to see like what is an effective way to communicate with them. And my proud, Mm -hmm. truly my one of my proudest moments of my whole life was one of my lead actors. We in our little meeting, we talked about Star Wars and how we both like Star Wars. And I was like, oh, I feel like your character has a little bit of Han Solo in him. Like weeks later, we were in tech, I think. And there was one line that he was not delivering the way I wanted, but it's very taboo Mm -hmm. in theater, especially to like give a line delivery to say, say it like this with the exact intonation. You're sort of trying to guide the person to do what you want without offending their control over the character. And I particularly in theater where you have to mm -hmm. repeat it over and over and over again. And that's why like just a an intonation delivery just won't cut it. Yeah. And so I had been trying to figure out like how to give him this note forever to try to get him to change that. And finally, Mm -hmm. I was like, Pat, I think this is like a Han Solo moment. I think this is like, I love you, I know moment. And then he immediately (laughs) delivered it the way I wanted. And I have truly never been proud. That was like a, I guess not a manipulation, but that was a communication thing where I was like, we needed to figure out how to break through that. And we did. And it was so satisfying. Yeah. And you got such good performances out of people, Caroline, like so many times. I really, really love it. And there are other things, you know, I didn't do the, the creepy manipulative thing of making actors hate each other. But for History Boys in particular... I was like, okay, we've got a cast of like eight guys that really have to feel the setup of the play is like there's eight students and then some teacher figures. And I was like, I really want the students to feel like they're their own crew. So I would have rehearsals that were just for them, which I kind of knew were just like bonding hangout times. I kind of framed them as rehearsals, but mostly we just like played theater games. And I was like, the goal here is really not directly working on the text. It's just making the eight of you bonded in some way by having these shared experiences. And then I think that that again 
I mean, saying it's a manipulation kind of sounds creepy, but it was a thing where I was very purposely being like, I'm not stating the goal of what we're doing, but I'm hoping we will have a result out of having a rehearsal that's mostly just us playing games together. Yeah, because you can't say, all right, today is a bonding Yeah, day. everyone bond today. <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah. So I think that Kazan, you know, as the famed actor's director, there's another quote where, where Robert De Niro said Kazan was the best actor's director by far of any I've worked for. So that's like certainly high praise. Yeah. And it, I will say from reading stories about Used to Be, and it does sound like poor Julie Harris did end up becoming sometimes the... <laughs> like a uh, peacemaker on set in some oh, ways dear. or she was she was frequently very good at like calming down her male co-stars mm-hmm. i was like man the the unpaid emotional labor that women have to do sometimes but yes um, particularly in this case well i mean that that feels also like in keeping with the function that the character of yeah. abra plays in the story she's like the only person who can really like mm-hmm. who like is sort of constantly like she is always like pulling the characters together mm-hmm. so i can in addition to the way in which, yes, like women are always asked to sort of like simmer down the tempers of these like histrionic men. Yeah. Uh, that also like particularly feels of a piece with what she is doing in this story. Yeah, exactly. And I do think she speaks very highly of Kazan as well. But it does sound like she was she kind of at some point became like the James Dean whisperer to an extent, as as you're saying, Abra kind of is. Her <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I love the scene at the carnival where... It's just her and yeah. Cal sort of like inadvertently going on a date because Aaron hasn't showed up yet. And you get Cal sort of being an asshole because yeah. he came with another girl and just like immediately ditches that girl to hang out with his brother's girlfriend instead. And they end up kissing on the Ferris wheel. But that whole scene, that kiss is so good. It is. It totally is. It's such It's such a great charged long shot leading up to that. And I, I also just, I read a... A little tidbit afterwards that like instead of doing the sort of uh rear projection they would normally do for that kind of the same thing you see when james dean is there's a close-up of him riding on the train yeah. that is that kind of thing you're used to seeing where it's like the background is being projected it's not really there although obviously james dean did climb on trains and do a number of other insane insane amazing That's stunts tr- i mean he climbs down a ferris wheel yeah the stunts in this movie are next level he's doing all these amazing stunts in this movie it's like, I mean, if he'd had a longer career, like, who knows what his, like, 60s action movies would have been like? Yeah, he, oh he's a God, great yeah. stunt performer. But instead of doing that, because I was like, we are going to rent a Ferris wheel and get it. And it's so cool. It just has this, like, great 20th century, beautiful carnival film mm-hmm. energy. And it's a long shot of the two of them just up there, isolated, drawing closer to each other and sort of, like, probing their own depths. And, yeah, they're... Their chemistry is like next level. Yes, and, and his acting. costuming is so good. It's like a wide neck collared shirt with like a deep V and then a jacket. Mm-hmm. It's just, he looks incredible. And he pulls this really smooth move where some guy has been harassing Abra, sort of being like, hey, go on a date with me. And James Dean kind of saddles up as if he's the boyfriend, to, you know, to be like, go away now. And it's like, he pulls mm-hmm. it off so well. It's so smooth. This is definitely when Cal is in his sort of mature phase. Like if we're, you mm-hmm. know, he starts immature gets more mature, has a crisis at the end of the film, and then sort of has his resolution. But yeah, the kiss is so good. It also made me realize, like, if you want to have either an awkward conversation or an awkward kiss with someone, don't do it on a Ferris wheel, because you are really trapped there if it goes poorly, as it kind of does here. He doesn't climb down the Ferris wheel to escape her. He's ostensibly going to help his brother. But like, low-key, maybe he is just trying to escape the awkward situation. Yeah. of them having kissed and then regretted it's it. It's great because in this long shot, they're slowly drawing nearer to each other and a long time, 
before they kiss, there's like all these like little like charged looks. I noted like a minute and a half earlier, I'm like, she sure is looking at his mouth a lot uh-huh. for someone who's like theoretically just like up there with your boyfriend's brother. But it's so good. And then they like, they have this kiss and it's like, it's so tortured as so many scenes in this movie, as we've said, are just like imbued with this deeply tortured energy. And they kind of throw themselves to opposite ends of the Ferris wheel mm-hmm. car. But it is, of course, only like four right. feet wide. So saying. there's like nowhere they can go. Yeah, it's just a great, that's a great, really great scene. I think she is an interesting fulcrum point in the good versus bad debate as well. And it's part of the reason I think mm-hmm. the movie's ultimately on Cal's side because her thing is that, I mean, mostly she's like, you know, I'm a normal person. There's some about me that's good. There's some about me that's bad. But Aaron, who has this very black and white viewpoint, he has really projected onto her like you are all the goodness in the world. You have no flaws, just as my mother, who I think is dead and in heaven, has no flaws. And you will be the Mm -hmm. perfect wife and you will be the perfect mother. And everything about our relationship will be perfect and good. And Abra's like, that's like a lot of pressure to put on me, bro. Like, I just want to live and be normal. And there's something about the lack of pressure and the lack of judgment from Cal that I think is part of what is drawing her to him. Mm -hmm. And I love how self-possessed she is and how aware, like that, that whole emotional dynamic you're talking about is one that she kind of explicates early in the movie in her first like real long, like intimate get to know her scene. I mean, with Cal when she's, they're sitting in the field and she just has all this like great self-aware introspection not in a way that feels like forced or ridiculous but just like in a you know a girl who is wise and just her sort of saying like i think it has to do as much with aaron's like dream of his mother as it does with me Mm -hmm. it's just like so yeah i just love that i forgot about their third cal and abra's third really great scene which is when he goes up onto her roof Mm -hmm. maybe kind of drunk at this point which i think dean was really drunk for what potentially at kazan's request (laughs) oh my god Sometimes it's amazing these people didn't like fall and break their neck. I, I mean, mean, movies I was are just wondering that now. scene where he almost falls. I was like, ooh, did he almost really fall? I bet you Tom Cruise loves this shit. I bet he's like, you know, what we need oh, to go yeah. back is the like fifties era where like everyone was constantly doing dangerous shit. There's those it's- stunts where it'll be like, oh yeah, somebody jumped off a horse and grabbed a covered wagon, and you know, yeah, crazy shit. I mean, those are legitimate stunt performers, not just making actors do stuff. But it, it yeah, it was a definite different yeah. era in terms of safety. But that scene, I just love the way which, like, essentially, for at least the first half of the scene, I mean, more like nominally, all they're doing is like discussing a plan to throw a birthday party for his dad. But it's so charged with all this like sexual energy of like trying to negotiate what their relationship is. And mm-hmm. he's like standing outside her window and she's in her bedclothes. Oh my God, it's it's wild. Great scene. As we say, Julie Harris, so good in this movie. Top the, notch. the other person I think is so good is Joe Van Fleet, who plays the mom, who plays Kate, the sort of yeah. iron, iron-willed iron madam. She was a, yeah. at this point, she was already a very successful Broadway actor and I think had a Tony, but this was her first ever film role. Whoa. Isn't that wild? She got an Oscar for it too. Well-deserved. I think she is phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I'm I was tempted to say she's my favorite character. It's she she has kind of significantly less screen time than the three build above her. Mm-hmm. But maybe anyway. I mean, she is so awesome in this movie. And it's so interesting the way that they, you know, they keep her at a distance for so long. I mean, for the first for the first third of the movie, it's kind of key to the development of this tension around her and Cal's uncertainty that we never really get that close to her. I mean, her face is literally covered for a while. We catch these glimpses of her. We finally do get a real look at her in the scene where he kind of like sneaks in her office 
and just kneels so like soft and vulnerable mm-hmm. and like broken at her feet like like looking for some sort of benediction and she wakes up and asks her extremely weird bouncer to beat him up <laughs> and then when they finally do first talk it's like he just he's kind of gone through some of his own transformation it almost feels like he's grown up enough now yeah. to have this conversation because he started to work on the farm and he has this idea about you know getting five thousand dollars to go into the bean business beans. and yeah beans just, just like there's beans. like 10 times where he'll just someone will be like what are you doing he's like beans beans <laughs> and then he just seems like kind of finds her out on the road and she with this sort of like wry resignation of like well you're out here like whatever shoot your shot kid they just have this like lovely slow ambling talk that leads they go into her office then and have I think I could say my favorite scene in the movie. It's just this amazing so dialogue good. where she kind of she kind of like lays out her her take on her life and like mm-hmm. why she's not in their lives anymore. And again, so I think in the book, the this character of Kate is much more explicitly just pure evil. Like I think Steinbeck has said he was writing very symbolic characters, and I think the book is like she. I think maybe she like murders her parents. Like she does very explicitly evil things that just put her in mm. that category. And I think what's interesting about this movie is that it it really leaves it all open ended. Like you hear that she did, you don't hear anything specifically she did that was horrible. It's just sort of this vibe of people maybe don't think she's good, but actually a lot of what we see of her seems pretty good. Like yeah, she's living an mm-hmm. unconventional life, but she's not friendly. She's not friendly, right? But she is kind of warm to Cal when he comes back. And she's like, hey, yes, sorry, like, is. I didn't know you were my son. And she'll kind of tease him like, oh, you know, you look like your dad. And what's your brother like? And there is an interesting, she's kind of like meeting him as an equal, less than, you know, the warm maternal figure. But mm-hmm. there, there is like, she does give him the money and not really in a judgmental way. He kind of like lays out his case. She's like, yeah, you're you're probably right. They really bond over this how difficult the dad can be. And again, it feels like she was a figure that the dad in his, you know, genuinely trying to be kind, like he's not framed as an intense puritanical guy exactly, but it's like his projection of the need to everybody to be good became really stifling Mm -hmm. for her to the point where she needed to run away. And in order to run away, she literally needed to shoot him in the shoulder, which again, you know, I could see in the book that being framed as like a crime for her, but it almost feels like, well, if you have to shoot your husband to get away with from him, maybe he's the problem in that situation. You know, if he's physically mm-hmm. not letting you leave because he's he needs you to fit his ideals of being a wife and mother. Like, I think the movie is kind of, while acknowledging her sort of coldness in a way, is also sympathetic to her and sort of frames her, like she's kind of cool, too. There's some, I yes, don't know. To me, there's really something about cool. her that's like aspirational almost. She's so powerful mm-hmm. and charming and con- and just she's she's charismatic. She's so yeah. charismatic and self possessed in that dialogue scene they have. Um, and you can see like in these other scenes character for people that haven't seen this movie of this sort of I don't know. She's almost she's almost like an Olivia Pope or something from Scandal. Do you know what I mean? Like there there I there's. I think that this character became a much more prominent and like sympathetic type of figure in more contemporary media. Yeah, I mean, she totally could be a Meryl character 50 years yeah. later, you know. Yeah, I guess there is a little bit like Devil Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, this yeah. is how Miranda Priestly is, but that's because she has to be that way and maybe we should respect her for it. You're a businesswoman, ain't you? One of the best, son. She's like, I'm a woman running my own business, like making my own way. I don't apologize to anyone for what I am. 
I'm not excessively cruel or anything, but like this is my world and you can sort of like deal with it or get mm-hmm. out of here. And um, she laughs at the irony of the fact that, you know, her ex-husband, the quote unquote good moral guy, he ended up losing all this money and now Cal's basically asking her to invest in a business venture that he can then use to pay his dad back and she's like how funny that my you know quote-unquote immoral money is now being used for a quote-unquote moral reason although that ends up yes not exactly being the case um we haven't exactly talked through the plot in order but i feel like that's kind of appropriate for the meandering way of this movie but the, the sort of climax of this movie which is really where i started writing oh no oh no oh no so many times in my notes is it all goes so, wrong oh at no. this birthday party that cal is going to throw for the dad he saved up all this money from his beans his sort of he knew that beans were going to be valuable because of the war so he kind of got in early and made a lot of money from that and so he goes to make this magical birthday party for his dad where his dad's finally going to love him and he's going to give him this money and he is like full wounded puppy mode of just He's like a throbbing nerve of vulnerability. Like, are the decorations okay? Like, will my dad like it? Did I wrap this present okay? So cute. And it all starts going wrong when Aaron comes in and he's like, hey, uh, Abra and I are going to be engaged. And the dad's like, well, there's literally no birthday present that could ever be better than what my golden son has given me. I guess I'll open Cal's present now. Aaron and Cal are already at odds because of this confrontation the night before or recently. And Aaron kind of like does that announces that proposal with kind of like a fuck you to Cal energy right as the other gift is about to be opened and and Abra you can tell like already like sees it and like she's beat up by that yes and then and then the dad opens up the money and immediately is like this is immoral money I can't accept it you've brought shame on me by even thinking that I could accept this why can't you be more like your brother but he's framing it as like I'm giving you good tough love (laughs) but you are like oh no we have watched this we have watched Cal dedicate months of his life leading up to this one act that he thinks will make his father love him and instead it is the act that his father is most judgmental for and the thing that i think is is sympathetic about the father in this thing is that well it's it's for a reason that i don't 100 percent fully understand because i don't understand things like futures investments yeah i was struggling with that too but it's something to do with the fact that the money the money was earned because the beans were so profitable because they were betting on the war effort. There's an element of like not actual war profiteering, but like sort of crossing over into that territory. Exactly. So the dad is saying, you know, I work on the draft board and there's been this sort of runner. There's been this whole like getting into World War One thing that's that's had its like that sort of plays a relatively significant part of the plot. And, you know, like the, you know, sons of this town are being sent off and dying. And the dad is sort of like, I every day am like faced with all these like these young men like dying and being wounded and being destroyed by this horrible war. And I refuse to take money that is turning a profit off of that. But of course, you know, all that works on Cal is like, he's basically been like, I'm going to turn my whole relationship around. And it's immediately being like thrown back in my face as an admonition. Mm-hmm. And it's excruciatingly painful scene to watch. so upsetting. And a famous Dean acting choice here is that in the script, when the dad sort of rejects him, Cal is just supposed to like leave the room. And Dean does this thing where he's so upset and then he just sort of starts going to hug the dad, like really slowly walking towards him, sort of like crying and like carrying the money, but then dropping the money. And that was something that Dean just did. Again, was one of those things where Matthew was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is not in the script. But but does kind of add to the intensity of the moment. And then he runs away. And then this becomes the really the last, I don't know, 15 to 20 minutes of this movie are just like the shit 
repeatedly hitting the fan. Yeah, big melodrama for sure. With the sort of love triangle coming to a head, Cal kind of realizes the one the one. Aaron is a total has. dick. Yeah. Yes. See, this is why I don't like Aaron. Feel justified in not liking him from the start. Well, this is what I'm saying. What I was saying earlier is that I think the movie, since it wasn't your first watch, I think you might forget what I felt was an effective bait and switch, where I think Aaron really seems like a solid dude in the beginning. And as far as I was concerned, was maybe going to continue to be a solid dude. And it was just going to have to be about Cal, you know, figuring his shit out. Mm -hmm. But Aaron is, at this point, incredibly cruel to, to Cal about like, I don't ever want to see you touch her again. Like, don't ever come near her. Father and I have always had to put up with you, even though, like, you're rotten. He basically is, like, you know, flying in the face of always, like, oh, I love him. He's just figuring his shit out kind of tone from earlier. It's like, you're scum. You've always been scum. Don't ever, like, I don't want to see you again. Uh, And it's a really interesting shot, by the way, because they kind of wander under this willow tree. This is Cal and Abra do. You, yes, you don't see. So during this sort of like Aaron, like chewing him out, Cal is not visible at all. Aaron, you just see his back and you really have foregrounded Abra who's just like hearing it all unfold. And mm-hmm. so it grounds it in again, like Julie Harris's extremely uh, beautiful, sympathetic performance. It's also such an, it's an unnerving shot that you can't see Cal. You can only see his feet and that you can't see the character who's delivering a lengthy monologue does feel- yes. That's not our like cinematic grammar that we're used to. It's very no, like, what's yeah. happening? Someone's made a mistake here. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's so interesting to watch. And this, they do a lot of these scenes too at like the dinner table. They'll all be the, these like really intense canted angles. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? They just lend to that unnerving quality. Well, I guess let's, let's go in Potter yeah. before we get to this. But the, so then Cal says like, I have, he, he sort of realizes like the thing he can lash back at Aaron with is the fact that, like, Kate's existence has been kept a secret from Aaron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he Under the sort of supposition that he wouldn't be able... Yeah, he's like, I'm going to tell him about mom. In the sense that Cal, as you say, like, having sort of grown up with this idea that he is bad and, and like, being non-judgmental, like, he clearly is somewhat tortured about the mom thing, but it seems like really all he wants is some sort of, like, love from her. And when he... Mm-hmm. Some sort of acknowledgement from her. And when he gets it, that kind of conflict of his, like, stalking her around kind of dissipates. But then Aaron is, like, clearly, like, too, like, uh, steeped in it to, like, even process that. Mm-hmm. It's a horrifying scene because it feels very cruel of Cal. As much, like, really more even to Kate because he kind of is using Kate mm-hmm. as a cudgel to hurt Aaron with. But he also clearly is, like, hmm, what's the thing that would have the most devastating psychological effect on my brother? I'm going to go do that. And he literally takes him to the brothel and kind of, like, flings him into the room and closes the door as if like locking him in with a you know a, an animal or something mm-hmm. creepy and then things really go bad <laughs> we thought they were yes, bad then so we far. have then we have the shot on the swing which is the shot that is probably the freakiest shot of the whole movie so to me. freaky like really really fr- like i kind of don't want to think about it it freaks me out the whole the sense <laughs> is just that there's sort of like a porch and the dad's standing on the porch and they've got a swing that's on the tree but it's got like really it's like pretty 
It's kind of wide. What's that called? Not a fulcrum, but the swing can go far. The swing can swing at its peak. The radius. It's got a radius, high yeah, radius. The yeah. circumference. It comes really close to the porch. And Dean's perched on it almost like a monkey. Like he's not sitting on it. He's like squatting on it. And it, he swings yeah. it all the way like it's going to hit the dad. You know, he's on it. He's swinging almost to the dad's face. And while he's swinging, the camera is swinging back and forth with him. Oh. It feels like a scene out of like Freaks. You know that movie Fr- Freaks? That we're about real life. We respect her, one of us. We respect her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it yeah. feels like something out of that somehow to me, even though it's just a guy on a swing. There's mm-hmm. something about it that's so like raw and upsetting and like yeah. animalistic. That's kind of like they kind of keep describing Cal as this like animalistic guy. And that I think is the scene that feels the most like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about decades a few cycles ago, and I was like, I think like it had to do with, it was maybe been talking about Halloween and 70s horror movies. Mm-hmm. And I really just mean 70s and before. Like there was this weird, uncanny danger where you felt like things might really be happening in a way in certain films. And this this has that, I maybe think. Maybe the tropes were less solidified. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, so then he tells he tells his dad. The sheriff comes in. This sort of, we've yeah. seen this. This is, where thing, this is where things go. Basically, Aaron sort of has a mental breakdown after seeing the mom. He has been a pacifist this whole time, but gets drunk, decides he's enlisting in World War One, gets on a train to enlist. Everyone's trying to rush to the station to stop him. And then mm-hmm. while he's there drunkenly sitting on the train and the dad is coming up to try to reach out to him, he literally smashes his head through a glass window sticks his head out through it which like really is palpable of the danger of like you could get your throat slit just from the glass that's around you and then the train pulls away and he just goes off to the war laughing maniacally the dad immediately has a stroke and just collapses on the ground yeah it is just you know i mean again the oh no's keep coming yeah and the dad falls into a almost like a coma he's had a stroke and he's almost non-communicative at this point so he's bedridden at home and then we get a weird swerve into almost like a happy ending, which is maybe yeah. the most jarring thing about this movie, which is that we have a final moment of communication, mainly sort of orchestrated by Abra, who kind of tells uh-huh. the dad, like, look, your son is going to... They're kind of like, well, Aaron's already gone. We can't really do anything about him. So all we can do is damage control over Cal. If you do mm-hmm. not, this is your make or break moment of reach out to Cal now or lose him forever. The sheriff has told him, like, go off like Cain and Abel. Go go mm-hmm. like Cain, east of Eden. That, that, that moment when Burl Ives, that moment when the snowman from the <laughs> the Frosty, <laughs> the Rankin yep. and Bass movies tells you to fuck off out of town forever. <laughs> so he's like, okay, I'll do that. And Abra's like, no, no, this is your chance. And there's this fucking nurse. It's weird. Another bizarre almost sitcom-y. I was like, the fuck is with this nurse? Side character. Yeah, basically he's got a... Cal sort of... He makes a plea that says, you know, Father, I I now understand what you were saying about having a choice in life, and I would like to choose to try to be a good person rather than a bad person. They've got this terrible nurse that's around. What's funny is the dad doesn't really respond to Cal's plea to be that he's going to be a good person, but he really responds when Cal yells at the annoying nurse. Like that's what he's makes like, the dad smile. He's like, I guess my, I guess the badness of my son is okay because he can yell at people that I find annoying for me. Another Dean movie with an extremely bizarre moment snuck in right at the end that yeah. almost feels like it's going to drill it. Yeah. Their like moment of connection is the dad's like this nurse, get her out of here. <laughs> yeah. She's so annoying. And she is really annoying into the way that's like really weird. Oh, God. It's, it's a strange, a strange moment. Strange ending. And then he basically asks Cal to stay and take care of him instead of getting a new nurse. And then Cal kisses Abra. Beautiful music plays. And that's the end of East of Eden. What a movie. Where do you think it stacks up against uh, Rebel Without a Cause? 
I think that uh, Rebel Without a Cause is kind of like the way in which it is self-contained. It has a little bit more of like a, I know what it's about. And it's something that I, as I expressed last week, I find really compelling to be about. So Mm -hmm. it's not quite as high as Rebel Without a Cause for me. I have been working on my 100 favorite movies. And I think Rebel Without a Cause is probably on there. And this one's probably not. But I would agree. I think top 300. What was a um, there was some quote from a New York Times review that I really liked that said that the film has energy and intensity, but little clarity and emotion. It's like, I feel like there's some that's very accurate. There is something compelling about the weird, unnerving energy of this movie. I just don't know if it all quite hangs together. But I do think mm-hmm. the Dean performance is as compelling if I guess I'll say as compelling as Rebel Without a Cause. I was going to say maybe it's even more compelling. But I do think that this is a really great like I get why Dean became such a massive breakout star, you know, almost immediately as soon as this film was released. I totally do as well. Although I I do think as as we're sort of saying that um, I think the character of Jim Stark and his like desire to be able to live sensitively in the world and his like struggle to do that is mm-hmm. one that I find a little bit more compelling than Cal's like uh just desire to figure his whole shit out. Yeah, I just yeah. So yeah, it just doesn't resonate quite as much with me. But I definitely had lots of things in it I liked and lots of like images that are sticking with me. I really just found it like I really can't drill home how much I found it unnerving. <laughs> yeah. As if it was a horror movie. That was really how I processed this entire movie. Which I guess is interesting to make a coming-of-age drama that feels like a horror movie. Yeah. This is the movie that gets Dean Rebel Without a Cause because Nicholas Ray sees in early cut of it and so casts him in that. Um, I Dean can see was, that 100%. That makes yeah, perfect sense. Completely. So like we say, this movie came out when Dean was still alive. Um, but then by the time the Oscars rolled around, he was gone. And so he was nominated posthumously for Best Actor. It was the first time the Oscars had ever done a posthumous um, acting nomination. Uh, you also get Kazan gets a Best Director nomination. It gets a Best Screenplay nomination. As we said, Joe Van Fleet won Best Supporting Actress. Good for her. Well, well deserved. Yeah. And then that's East of Eden. What a film. Any other any other hits from that one? I remember that scene where dad is like learning how to use the car. I found that extremely <laughs> sweet. That does that, sweet that scene goes a long way. So, so random. Yes, really random. It just feels like a Steinbeck thing they just had to put in. Mm-hmm. But it goes a long way towards humanizing Alan, Adam, for me, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, he's just so, just so cute. Also, I was just like, God damn, cars are scary. Yeah, especially like a 1917 car. Oh my God, there's just so much, so much danger of it, like ripping you apart, just trying to make the thing go. Yeah, truly. Freaky. Uh, it's also funny. Isn't it funny to think of a, a, you know, we think of the 1950s as so long ago, but it's like a period piece from the 1950s. Like, I think I count, like that this movie, a movie from 1955 being set in 1917 is like a movie from now being set in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like, it would have been in more in living memory, this period of time. Just interesting to think about. And yet distinct from, it kind of can go both ways, you know, we can conflate and be like, ah, a movie from 1917, but it's not really that. And I think, I was talking about this with uh, Alejandro Tay the other day about The Music Man and how people kind of mistakenly think of The Music Man as a musical that's 120 years old. Mm. But it's like, no, it's a a musical that's like 60 years old that had its own perspective Mm -hmm. on that Mm -hmm. time that was 60 years previous There was a big, in the 1950s, there was a big like, they love turn of the century stuff. It's all over the yeah. 1950s. 
Anyway, yeah. that's neither here nor there. Because um, the suits were so good. Yeah, true. <laughs> Bring back the suits. So that's East of Eden. That is our our second of three Dean movies. Next week, we are bringing this miniseries to a close, which is remarkable to think about. But we are going to do so with mm-hmm. Giant, Dean's final film. We got a guest for that episode that we are super excited about. And who knows? Maybe I'll watch a few more of those TV Dean specials and see if I have any more to recommend to you all. Before we wrap up, can we do can we do a shout out to our fan mail? Heck yeah. We got an email uh from a listener mm-hmm. named Lily, Lily from New Zealand who was that was the first <laughs> first piece of fan mail we've ever got at uh rollcalling@gmail.com as we always say you can email us. It just you forwarded this to me this morning. I just been feeling kind of down. I know I said I'd had like a fun week traveling, but I also like this weekend I got rejected from two film festivals. So like last night going to bed, I was just like kind of feeling kind of glum about myself as like an artist. And uh, and then I woke up to this text and email from you about this letter we got from Lily about how she's been listening to the podcast and enjoying it. And uh, it just got me so emotional. Yeah, thank you so much, Lily. We were both super touched by that. So yeah, thank you. It's nice to feel, you know, recording a podcast is weird. It feels like a little bit putting it out into the void, but we do appreciate you emailing us. If other people would like to email us, as we always say, Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy and our logo is designed by Nick Wansersky. The most important part is that you can reach out to us on Twitter at Roll Calling or as Lily did, email us rollcalling at gmail.com that's roll spelled r-o-l-e next week we'll be back to wrap up our james dean series with giant until then high strung fairly high strung <laughs>